Take your Bible and turn to John 19. We see the finishing of this great love. The completion of it in all of its glory. We come this morning to a text that is all about fulfillment. All about finishing and completion. I think you know this morning the unique joy of coming to the end of something. Of finishing and completing something. As a student, you have worked and labored and been brought to the end of your course and of your studies and have rejoiced to receive your diploma and move from there. As a parent, you've known the long road of instructing your child in a certain discipline and helping them know what it looks like to be a mature person in this area. And finally, after years of investment, you see them graduate as it were, to do it on their own, the unique joy. That project at work finally gets sent to production and a wonderful product is produced because of your labor. You know the joy of success. Maybe you know the reality of an enduring disease plaguing your body and requiring intense treatment and coming to the end of that treatment plan and having the doctor pronounce you as best he knows in good health. What joy in that finality. Even in the simplest of things, like something you finished this last week, like a day at work when it was finally time to go home, or a day at school when it was finally time to close the books and and head to the next thing. We know the joy of something being done. And all those smaller things point ahead to the, the greatest of completed works. The finality and fulfillment we see in our text, of the greatest work ever undertaken by the greatest man to ever have lived. Jesus, in our text, comes to the end of his course. He has finished his race. His works are complete and his mission is done. And he cries out with a loud voice in our text to declare it to be so. Friend, how do we move forward into such a holy text? How do we do justice to this highest of texts in the Gospel of John? We do so with humble dependence upon our Lord. So would you pray with me for God's help? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are desperate for you to open our eyes and our hearts to comprehend and to rejoice with fresh joy in a Savior who would give His life as a ransom for our sin. We pray that You would open this text up to us in ways we could not have imagined. And in so doing, would You comfort the brokenhearted, heal those who are grieving, lift up those who are cast down, encourage those who are faithful and persistent, and embolden those who are weak, and strengthen us all in the grace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is our desire. We pray, Father, for your holy help. In Jesus' name, amen. John 19, verse 28. John reports this as an eyewitness. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, 
he said, or as Luke and Matthew tell us, he yelled, it is finished. One word in the original, three words in the English, to telestai. It is done. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Last week we saw our Lord Jesus compassionately care for his mother in his dying moments. Seeing his good friend and disciple John nearby, he commissioned John to adopt Mary and to care for her in her widowhood. He pronounced that there was a change in the relationship between he and Mary. And he tells John to to take her to his own home. And and John does. He, from that very hour, takes her and removes her from the scene of Calvary. And then sometime later, he returns to the scene. And we know this, especially from his account, because there's, there's a gap in his reporting. He doesn't tell us of the darkness falling at the noon hour upon the scene of Calvary. He doesn't tell us about the the cry from Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he's writing as an eyewitness and he wasn't there for them. He was taking Mary to his home. And then he returns as is reported in Matthew and Luke and they stand further off from the hill of Calvary and they see Jesus suffering. And now he picks up his reporting in verse 28. And he not only tells us what he saw, but he gives us the reason for what's happened. He tells us that Jesus says two words in the original, more than that in the English, obviously. But in these two words, he communicates deep, glorious, amazing theological truth. As he declares, Jesus does from the cross, these two words. In that first word, we see a push to fulfillment. And in that second word, we see the perfection of this fulfillment and the power in fulfillment. In that first word, that I thirst word in verse 28, we see Jesus' determination to complete his mission. He knows that all things have been brought to their end. John says that in verse 28. He knew that all things had been fulfilled or completed. But he knows that there's one thing yet remaining. All of the redemption to-do list up to this point has been checked off, as it were. But there's one thing that couldn't have been fulfilled until this moment. And that is for Jesus to fulfill the prophetic word from Psalm 69, 21, that they would give him sour wine to drink. And so he cries out one word, I thirst. Before we take note of how this fulfills the scripture, just think for a moment of the human suffering component of this reality. The cross, the execution of Jesus has has taken him so low. that He is so without hydration, that it is about to take his life. Scientists tell us that our bodies are made up of mostly water. 70% is their best guess based on their studies of our human body. There's a high concentration of water in your body, in your brain. 95% of the matter in your head is water, which is why when you get dehydrated, you get a massive headache. Because your brain is literally screaming to you, I need water to continue functioning, to stay alive. Can you imagine the the screaming reality of the body of Jesus on Calvary's cross as he is exasperated in the moment with his suffering? 
His body screams for water and he pronounces, I thirst. But you must know this is not a cry for mercy or for sympathy from our Lord. This is not him letting everyone else know how hard this is for him. What this is for Jesus is a push to fulfillment. Notice how in verse 29, Jesus, uh, John, excuse me, tells us that the, the uh, sour wine was a jar full of it at the foot of the cross and, and how they picked up a, a sponge and they filled it with sour wine and, and then they put it on a, a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. Those are details that only an eyewitness would be able to report to you. John, seeing the, the jar full of sour wine and seeing the, the sponge then filled with sour wine and then put on a hyssop branch and lifted to the mouth of Jesus. He knew what he saw and he reports it to us. This is different, by the way, than the, the mixture offered to Jesus at the beginning of his crucifixion. Remember, he was offered the, the wine mixed with myrrh. It was a, a concentration and a, a mixture meant to deaden the pain of those being crucified. It was the, the one offer of mercy to the one heading to their death. Remember, Jesus tasted it and then refused it wanting not in any way to deaden his pain, wanting to know the fullness of the suffering under sin's condemnation. But here now at the end of the cross, at the the completion of his work, he knows he has something yet to say, knows he doesn't have enough saliva to say it. And so he says, I thirst, unable to meet his most basic human need. Parents, when your child tells you, I am thirsty, and they're old enough, what do you tell them? Go get a drink. There's cups in the cupboard. Water is a good choice, right? It is a most basic need that you know how to meet for yourself. Here is our Lord hanging on a cross, obviously physically unable to meet his most basic need. And has to say to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Do you remember Jesus' first miracle? This does pertain, I'll connect it. Do you remember his first miracle? He's in Cana at a family wedding. And in that family wedding, he cannot, uh, the the wine runs out and and the uh, mother of Jesus comes and says, do something. And so he takes those jars and has them full of water and then changes the water into good wine. Symbolic of the goodness of the kingdom of Jesus and of the eternal joys that were awaiting those who believed in Jesus and entered into his kingdom. Here at the end of his life, what is, what is the, the reality of what the people of God have done with this offer? What have the Israelites done with the offer of Jesus and his good wine in his good kingdom? Well, they've rejected him as king. They've so rejected him that they've demanded his death. And now he suffers on an execution stake. And so at the end of his life, the one who offered them the good wine of his kingdom and of his perfect rule is here now given sour wine in fulfillment of Scripture. That Scripture to be fulfilled is Psalm 69, as I mentioned. It's an expression of the agony of the cross a thousand years prior to Jesus' suffering. It speaks of how they gave him poison as food, the psalmist says, and sour wine to drink. Jesus knows this Messianic prophecy has not yet been fulfilled, and so in these final moments, on the cross, as he hangs and suffers and is ready to die, he utters one word, I thirst. And by this, he pushes to fulfillment. Beloved, just with fresh eyes, see your Savior. 
that he, in his suffering for your eternal salvation, was cognizant, had the conscientiousness to know that Scripture still needed to be fulfilled. Had his wits about him enough to know that there was a prophecy outstanding and determined this Savior was to obey every last command and prophetic word of his Father. And in his suffering, he says, I thirst. I wonder how that would change our suffering if we would follow our Lord here. If we would see in him a model for how we ought also then to suffer. There's obviously a great application of his suffering to our suffering, meaning that he identifies with your suffering. We sang about that this morning. He takes your, your grief and your agony and he, he drinks it to its full and he empties it of its power. He takes it away from you, not necessarily in the moment, but in its finality. There's coming a day when there will be no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more tears or crying because Jesus took it all on the cross for us. But there's, there's more than that here in his suffering. He shows us the way we ought also to suffer. That we in our suffering should be thoughtful like him to be saturated with the word and keeping our lives in obedience to that word. Desiring like the Father has ordained for us to suffer, to then obediently suffer. Humbly, submissively suffer to do what God has called us to do in our suffering. It's easy to focus on relief, focus on getting out, to focus on the end. Jesus knows the end is coming and he's focused on keeping the word, every jot and every tittle. I also want you to see in this push to fulfillment, Jesus is also providing our eternal satisfaction. He's determined to suffer to the depths of of physical desperation because he must be our eternal supply. In other words, he thirsted on the cross so that we can be eternally satisfied. That's what he promised, wasn't it, to the woman at the well in John 4? When When he said to her, all who are thirsty can be spiritually satisfied by drinking of me, the living water, Isn't that also what he said in John 7 when he rose up at the feast after the the festival of carrying the water and pouring it out before the altar? He stood up and he loudly proclaimed to all who would hear, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He could say that ahead of the cross because he knew he would be empty. He would be completely parched, entirely dehydrated, so that we could be eternally supplied. This is what we see in the book of Revelation, isn't it? This is how the story ends, which is what God always does. How he begins it and how he promises it, it will go, this is how it ends. The Revelation 7, you remember that scene, the, the multitude before the throne of every tribe, nation, tongue, and people are gathered before the throne. The, the elder who is around the throne tells John that those are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. And then he goes on to say about them that they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And listen, he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. That's Revelation 7, 16 and 17. 
Not only that, but he goes on and in the end of it, the fulfillment of it in Revelation 21 and 22 is as God paints the picture of the new heaven and the new earth to come. And he tells us that God's going to dwell with us in the new Jerusalem on the new earth. And we're going to dwell with him. And there will be no more death and no more crying and no more pain and no more agony. And then the one seated on the throne in Revelation 21 verse 6 says this, it is done. Sound familiar? It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Now listen to what he says next. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Friend, Jesus was entirely, desperately parched so that you could be eternally satisfied. He was made thirsty in his suffering so that you would never thirst again. That's the push to fulfillment. See also the perfection of fulfillment in verse 30. This is the pinnacle moment of Scripture and of human history, isn't it? Everything ascends to verse 30 or everything descends from it. The, the pinnacle of the glory of the work of Jesus is seen in the shout of victory. From the cross. As Matthew and Luke has told us, they heard Jesus shout with a loud voice. John tells us not that he just shouted, but also what he shouted this word, it is finished. This is not the word of exasperation or even of, of expiration, as though it's finally done. I'm, I'm finally out of this. This is rather a declaration of victorious accomplishment, the fullness of perfection and and the completion of his work. Well, what was done? What did he complete? And we could spend the rest of our spiritual journey plumbing this depth. But just think with me for a few minutes about what was it that Jesus perfected? What did he fulfill? What did he bring to its end? Well, the first thing he brought to its end was the law's righteousness. The law's righteousness is fulfilled. Jesus is making known that in coming from heaven to live as one born under the law, that he has fully kept the law in all of its parts. He has perfectly obeyed, and he is now the righteous one, declared right before God in keeping with the law. He is saying it is finished in that the law itself was never the problem. The people of God were the problem. And I'm proving that, the Messiah is proving that through his Death on the cross in their place. Jesus said in his own words in Matthew 5.17 that he did not come to abolish the law or to get rid of the law, but rather to fulfill it in every way. This is why Romans 10.4 can tell us with a, a very similar Greek word that Christ is the end of the law, the telos of the law. Here he declares to telestai, it is finished. The law has been brought to its perfect completion and fulfillment by Him and in Him. Every demand has been met in His life. Not only was the law finding its perfect fulfillment in Jesus in this moment, but also the Old Testament prophecies and types are fulfilled by our Savior here. That's the immediate context of verse 30, isn't it? We saw that in verse 28. It's the same word, by the way, in the Greek. When John tells us that Jesus knew everything was to tell us that. Everything was finished. And everything being finished, now Jesus says, 
Those Old Testament prophecies are complete, and he declares it is finished. There's not been one missed. There's not been a, a prophetic word spoken hundreds or thousands of years prior that has been missed by our Lord. So did the Scripture say the, the Messiah had to be born as a seed of a woman? So he was. Was he to be born of a virgin? So he was. Of the seed of Abraham? Yes, he was. Of the lineage of David? Yes, he was. Named before he was ever born? Yes, he was. Did the Scripture say he was to be born in, in Bethlehem, Ephrata? Yes, he was born there. Did Scripture predict that at his birth there would be great tragedy to other children in his area? Yes, indeed, there was. Was this Messiah to flee to Egypt and to escape and, and to stay there in hiding and then to come back and save his people? Yes, he did. Did Scripture predict his ministry that would follow after would be a work of a forerunner that would come before him and declare the way plain in the wilderness? Make straight paths for the Messiah. Indeed, it was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Was this Messiah to be a worker of great miracles, like causing the blind to see and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear and curing the leper and raising people from the dead? Yes, He did. More times over than could ever be recorded in all the books if all the world were full of them. Was He to be a light to the Jew and beyond the Jew to the Gentile? Was He to bring the salvation of God to the entire world? Yes, He was, and yes, He did. Was this Messiah to be rejected by His own people, be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Was He supposed to be hated without a cause and condemned to die for no wrongdoing? Yes, He was, and yes, Jesus was. Was He to be betrayed by a close friend? Forsaken by his closest disciple. Led to the slaughter like a lamb who is silent. Quiet before his accusers. Pierced in his hands and his feet. Cursed upon a tree. Dying among transgressors. Mocked by the masses. His garments bartered for at the foot of his cross. Given sour wine to drink. Not a not a bone of his body left in joint. Indeed, indeed, he was. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all of these and many more I did not mention. Glorious prophecies spoken hundreds of years before by our God. In him, it is finished. But not just of Old Testament prophecies, but also of Old Testament types. Types are real-life real pictures, metaphors, as it were, pointing ahead to something greater, to a, a better and more glorious reality. There are foreshadows in literary terms. And here in Jesus, we see them all perfectly fulfilled. So the covering of the animal skins given by God to Adam and Eve in the garden to hide their guilt and cover their shame. Here is Jesus, given by God to cover our guilt eternally and our shame forever. 
Abel gave a more excellent sacrifice, one of blood in accordance with God's command. Here in Jesus, we have the most excellent and complete sacrifice in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Noah and his family took shelter in the ark to avoid the wrath of God against the world. And they were spared and saved through the flood. Here in Jesus, we have eternal shelter from the wrath of God provided for sinners who will enter through the door who is Jesus Himself. Then in Abraham, you have a, a one and only true son of the promise, Isaac, who is taken to the top of a hill and put on an altar but spared death. Beloved, here is Jesus, the only Son of the promise, the only Son of God, raised on a hill and not spared death. And there is the blood of the Lamb in Egypt spread on the doorposts and on the lintel, which caused the angel of death to pass over and spare the life of the firstborn in the people of God. Here in Jesus, we have the perfect Passover lamb. His blood spread over the doorposts and lintels of our lives. Speaking for us that we are in Him and the death angel ought pass over, not just now, not just tomorrow, but for all eternity. His blood speaks a better word. The cure of the serpent's bite in the wilderness when they rebelled against God and He sent fiery serpents into their midst and they were dying because of their sinfulness. And Moses created a brazen uh, serpent and raised it on a stick for them to see and told them, look to the serpent and live. They looked and lived. Here, beloved, we have Jesus raised on a stake to whom we must look and live. Whose heel is struck by the serpent, but who crushes the head of the serpent under his foot. As Moses struck the rock in the wilderness and life-giving water gushed out into that desert scene and sustained the people of God, so Jesus is the rock struck to death so that an eternal supply of life-giving water can ever flow from Him to us. Beloved, it is finished. Every Old Testament type finds its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I want you to see that the work of the Father is finished. This is what God the Father told God the Son, to go into the world commissioned to complete your work. We're told that very clearly in the Gospel of John, verse, chapter 5, verse 36, but the testimony Jesus said that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Over and over again in this gospel, John has reported the words of Jesus. I am sent from the Father. I've been given a specific task, and I'm here to do that task. And it speaks to you that you should believe and be saved. John 17, verse 4, as he enters in on his prayer, his high priestly prayer, he says to the Father, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. We know that Jesus carried that through to its finality because here on the cross, he declares it to be so. This is his declaration to us. It is done. I've completed them all. Every work my father gave, I have obeyed to its full. 
Well, how does the Father think about that? How does God the Father view the work of the Son? Does He agree? Is the work done? Is the assignment completed? Well, we know it to be so because what happens next? He's raised from the grave. The stamp of approval by the Father that the work of the Son was exactly what He wanted it to be. That it was finished and complete. Not only that, but He, in raising Him from the grave, also brings Him back to heaven. He's ascended. And being ascended, what does He do? He sits down at the right hand of God the Father. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 10, 11, Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Their work is never done. The human priest in the Old Testament system kept offering sacrifices. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's a, a quadruple proof from the Father that the work of the Son was completed. He raised him. He ascended him. He had him sit down at his right hand and he, I didn't mention, is soon returning. This is the testament of the Father that the work of the Son is finished. Also, the sinner's atonement is accomplished. We see here the fulfillment of our need for redemption. The price is here fully paid. We are through the work of Jesus, fully bought back from sin and its dominion and its power and its penalty. Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus said, I I don't come here to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Here, this ransom work is complete. This stamp of finality is this cry of victory by our Lord. Galatians 4, verse 5 says that he was sent by God, born of a woman and born under the law so that he could redeem those who were under the law. This is his finishing of that redemption. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15 that Jesus came to save sinners. Well, that saving of sinners required this death in our place. A.W. Pink has said it this way, the, the lost that he came to seek could only be found there in the place of death and under the condemnation of God. Sinners could be saved only by taking their place and bearing their iniquities. They who were under the law could be redeemed only by another fulfilling its requirements and suffering its curse. Our sins could be taken away only by their being blotted out by the precious blood of Christ. The demands of justice must be met. The requirements of God's holiness must be satisfied. The awful debt we incurred must be paid. And on the cross, this was done done by none less than the Son of God, done perfectly, done once for all. Amen, AWP. We concur. Sin's atonement is accomplished. Sin's condemnation is also complete. With this finishing of our redemption, the condemnation for sin, the judgment upon sin, finds its completion. The sinner's redemption is fulfilled, therefore his condemnation is no more. The forsakenness of our sinfulness is completely placed upon our Christ. To the extent of him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here in this final cry of of conquest, he declares it is over. The cup of wrath reserved for sinners 
has been drained down to its dregs by the suffering servant. And in this word, he takes that cup of wrath and he turns it over for you to show you there's nothing left. It is finished. Friend, I ask you, have you been rescued by this Jesus? The greatest need upon your soul today is are you forgiven for your sins? Nothing matters more than that. Do you know before the God of heaven that your debt has been paid? That sin's condemnation has been taken from you? The only way for that to be true is for it to have been placed on Christ in your Either you will bear the condemnation of your sin. The Bible tells us that will be in eternity, away from God. Luke 16 tells us that, that that experience, among many other terrible realities, is an experience of dreaded thirst. You remember the rich man who went to hell and Lazarus who went to heaven? seen Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, he cried out and said, Abraham, just let him let Lazarus dip his finger in water and give me one drop. It's an awful reality, eternally parched, unable to be satisfied. Eternal life is the exact opposite, full and complete in joy, satisfied in totality beyond what you can even comprehend or imagine in this life, provided for you by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, do you know this Jesus? Have you in faith put all of your hope in him alone? Do you believe his work is sufficient? There's nothing to be added. Has he saved you from your sins? If he has not, there is no need to wait. Friend, right now, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your rebellion against the God of heaven and cry out to God for the salvation of your soul. And I promise you, you will find him if you seek him. And he will save you from your sins. Brother or sister, can I encourage you, those of you who know this forgiveness of your sins in the work of Christ, can you have the testimony of our Savior from His cross be the salve your soul needs again today? Can you believe Him with, with fresh faith that it's done? That He completed it for you? Can you stand on the assurance of His Word to you for all time? It is finished. You need not add anything else to it. You need not secure your standing with the God of heaven in any way. Jesus has paid it all. Stand in that assurance. Make this the sure foundation of your faith. Lean fully on Christ. Know the full joy of that assurance and glory in Him alone. That is the perfection of fulfillment. I want to show you lastly the power in fulfillment. And that's in verse 30. This whole scene is brought to a close as our Lord bows his head and gives up his spirit. The idea here in the language is that he delivers his spirit to the Father. 
That's the very words he says according to Matthew and Luke. He says, Father, into your hands I deliver my spirit. Did you know that nowhere else in Scripture is the death of anyone else recorded this way? No one else speaks about death this way. No one else's death is talked about this way. We don't choose when or how to die. We have no control or power over life and death. Jesus says through his words here, he has complete power in this moment. He's in full control. He had already told us that no man would take his life from him, but that he would have the power, the authority to lay it down and to take it up again. There is a sense as you gaze upon the cross that we see a a victimization of our Lord. In some ways, he he is victimized on the cross, but he certainly never bears the label of victim. He's here by his own choosing to accomplish his Father's will. He endures through to the end by his own power and for his own glory. He gave up his spirit. This is in keeping with another prophecy. Isaiah 53 and verse 12 says that the Messiah would pour out his soul unto death. Here is Jesus pouring out his soul, quite literally, unto death, giving himself in death to his Father. Friend, the power in this scene is not the soldiers at the foot of the cross. The power in this scene is not the centurion overseeing all the executions. The power is not in the cross itself as the execution stake that kills many. The power is not in the religious leaders who demanded the death of this man. The power is not in the the public opinion expressed by many who who raise their voices and wag their heads at our Lord, shaming and mocking Him as He dies. The power is not in Pilate, who had the final say in determining if this man was crucified or not. The power is not in the spiritual powers of darkness who are here at work to pour out one last blow against the Son of God in death. No, none of those are the power in this scene. The power in this fulfillment is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, controlling every one of His final breaths and giving His life as a ransom, pouring out His soul unto death. And having completed and finished His course, He has full victory over sin and death and hell. So much so that the psalmist describes it as Him leading us in procession. Paul picks that up in Ephesians 4 and he says this. He led, Jesus led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. That's what we are. We're just a host of captives. Captive to our sin, enslaved to our condemnation. Hopeless and helpless. And Jesus, by his power, enters into our captivity through his shed blood and Ransomed life, giving it on the cross, He frees us and leads us to eternity. And we follow today in His train in triumphal procession. It is finished. Let's pray. God in heaven, oh, the glory that this is true. May you be eternally praised 
for you have accomplished on this cross our eternal redemption. We praise you for this. Would you capture our hearts with fresh joy? Fill our hearts with fullness of faith that we may stand assured, confident in the completed work of our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for suffering, bleeding, and dying for us. May you be pleased with how we now live in light of our lives being ransomed by your sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name, amen.